Chapter 44 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Garden Spider Epira Diadema Between the gorse brushes on a common, or the clumps of heather on a moor, or in the openings between the bushes in a garden, we often see a large and nearly vertical net with many radii, and what we may take at first glance to be circles intersecting the radii. If there has been dew or fine rain, the net becomes much more conspicuous because of the small drops which cling to it. In the center of the pattern, a large spider will probably be seen hanging head downwards. She is of chestnut or dark brown color, speckled with whitish spots, and on the back of the abdomen a white cross is plainly to be seen. There are many species of Apira, but only one shows the white cross. A pocket lens is sufficient to show the details of the garden spider's head. It is blended with the following divisions of the body, thorax, as in all spiders, and shows two sets of instruments, eyes to discern the prey, and jaws to grasp and devour it. The poison fangs, chelicerae, are two-jointed and close up like a clasp knife, each of the meeting edges being armed with sharp teeth. The duct of the poison gland opens near the tip of the terminal joint. Behind the poison fangs comes a second pair of jaws, which look more innocent, since they end in jointed and hairy palps. The base of each is shaped into a cutting blade opposable to its fellow and useful in mastication. Kirby and Spence, in their Introduction to Entomology, give an excellent description of the fabrication of a garden spider's net, and their description, supplemented where requisite by later observations, forms the basis of the following account. The first step in the formation of the net is the laying of the exterior lines, which pass in most cases from branch to branch and are composed of several threads glued together. These are secured at many points by finer threads. Having thus completed the foundations of her snare, the spider proceeds to fill up the outline. Attaching a new thread to one of the boundary lines, she travels along the circumference, drawing out the thread as she proceeds and guiding it with one of her hind feet, so that it may not touch surrounding objects of any kind. When the new thread has been carried half round the circle, she secures it to the boundary, stretching it diametrically across the center of the space. A second thread is laid down in like manner, crossing the first at its center, and after this the work proceeds rapidly, until twenty or thirty radii have been fixed. During these preliminary operations the spider sometimes rests, as though her plan required meditation but no sooner are the marginal lines firmly stretched and the first radii spun than she continues her labor rapidly and without pause. Proceeding to the center, she pulls each thread with her feet to ascertain its strength, breaking any one that seems defective and replacing it by a fresh one. When satisfied about this, she leads a spiral line from the center to the margin of the net, the innermost turns being close together, but the outer ones much more open. This preliminary spiral is only a temporary scaffolding, to be replaced by a permanent spiral of different construction. Starting anew from the periphery, where the first spiral line ended, she draws a second spiral thread towards the center and glues it to all the radii as it crosses them. The thread is continued in gradually diminishing turns until the center is almost reached. Why, we may ask, should two spiral lines be laid down by the garden spider, one temporary and the other permanent? The answer is that in its final state the spiral line is meant to be adhesive, so as better to entangle flies, but a viscid thread is too slippery to give foothold, even to the spider that lays it down, and moreover, 
The viscid coating is injured whenever the spider steps upon it. Since the radii are too wide apart towards the circumference for the spider to step from one to another, she lays a non-viscid spiral line for her own use and bites it away bit by bit when she passes over it for the last time. The original spiral line is not completely removed. Towards the center, a few non-viscid threads are left, and these constitute the watching station of the spider. Here she hangs head downwards by the claws of her hind legs, waiting for a victim, which cannot fail to agitate one or more of the radii and thus give her instant warning. The permanent spiral thread is coated with a sticky film, as we see by its retaining dust and adhering to the fingertip when lightly touched. When fresh spun, this thread has a uniform covering of fluid, poured out no doubt from special glands, though these have not been clearly identified. As soon as the thread is properly coated, the spider plucks each section like a harp string, and the vibration thus set up resolves the fluid into countless drops, too small to be seen by the naked eye. The sticky globules must not be confused with the much larger dewdrops, which are often seen on the web of an autumn morning. When exposed to sun and wind, the adhesive coating soon dries up. But Blackwall found that when the net was enclosed in a glass jar, the adhesive property remained unimpaired for months. When in full activity, a garden spider makes a new net every day, or at least relays the viscid spiral thread. Old spiders are not able to secrete so much silk, and content themselves with repairing the net so long as it is in fair working order. Somewhere in the neighborhood of the net, the spider has her special retreat, concealed usually by the leaves of a bush, and into this she drags her victims, sucking their juices and throwing out the carcasses. A stout line of communication, composed of several threads glued together, leads from the center of the net to this retreat, and by its vibration gives notice to the spider whenever a fresh victim is caught in the snare. The male spiders, which are much smaller than the females, are usually to be found near the retreat. Blackwall describes the curious proceeding by which the garden spider and some other epiras envelop their prey. When too large and powerful to be safely approached, threads are cut away until the victim dangles. It is then made to rotate by a touch from one of the spider's legs, fine threads issuing from the spinners being first attached by means of a cautiously extended leg. As the object revolves, it is speedily wrapped up in a dense covering of silk, which makes even struggling impossible. In this way, the garden spider deals with formidable insects, such as wasps. Her eggs are laid in autumn in a cocoon formed of a double sheet of yellow silk. There may be several hundred eggs in one cocoon. Leaves and other natural objects are often interwoven to give it an unsuspicious appearance. The garden spider often finds herself in a difficulty when seeking to run the first marginal threads of her net from point to point. The branches, which she desires to connect, may be high above the ground and too far apart for her to make her way from one to the other by any ordinary method. One of the authors of the Introduction to Entomology relates the following observations, which are here slightly condensed. Quote, I placed a large field spider, Epira diadema, upon a stick about a foot long set upright in a vessel containing water. After fastening its thread, as all spiders do before they move, to the top of the stick, it crept down the side until it felt the water with its forefeet, which seemed to serve as antennae. It then immediately swung itself from the stick and climbed up by the thread to the top. This it repeated perhaps a score of times. At length it let itself drop from the top of the stick, not by a single thread, but by two, 
one finer than the other. When it had nearly reached the surface of the water, it broke off the finer thread, which still adhering to the top of the stick floated in the air and was carried about by the slightest breath. On bringing a pencil to the loose end of this line, it did not adhere. I therefore twisted it once or twice round the pencil and then drew it tight. The spider, which had previously climbed to the top of the stick, immediately pulled at the thread with one of her feet, and finding it sufficiently tense, crept along it, strengthening it as she proceeded by another thread, and thus reached the pencil." Unquote. Many spiders which wander in search of prey are able to emit threads by which they can support their bodies in the air when a breeze, even a gentle breeze, is blowing. The example just described shows that the snare-making spiders also may possess the power of throwing out a line, which, though it may not suffice to raise the spider in the air, enables her to pass to a point which would be entirely inaccessible otherwise. The garden spider is guided in these operations entirely by her sense of touch. Blackwall tells us that he repeatedly confined garden spiders in glass jars placed in absolute darkness and found that, though unable to see, they made nets of admirable workmanship. What kind of feet does a spider require in order to run about on a network of fine silken threads? It is worthwhile to examine the foot of a garden spider or any other. You will find a pair of strong claws projecting from the upper surface of the last joint. Each claw is curved and armed beneath with a row of teeth. A third and smaller claw is found beneath the pair, and on close examination, several more claws, each with a row of pointed teeth, can be made out. We see that the comb-like teeth are suitable for clutching at a fine thread, but the difficulty is to explain why so many claws are required. On the hind legs, and on them only, are opposable claws, which can grasp the thread as well as hook onto it. When the spider dangles from its thread, it always holds on by the opposable claws of its hind feet. The harvestman makes no web, but follows its prey over stubble and the slender blades of grass. Here you will find that the foot consists of a long series of minute joints, each with its own set of outstanding hairs. The whole series may be half as long as the rest of the leg. The extraordinary length and flexibility of such a foot are obviously adapted to support on a yielding surface. The harvestman, one might almost say, runs about on flexible snowshoes. The silk of the garden spider is employed by opticians in one of the most delicate parts of their work, namely, the quartering of the field of a telescope or theodolite. The garden spider, which is easily identified by the white cross on its back, is always selected. When captured and set on a wire fork, she attaches her thread and lets herself drop. The fork is then turned round and round, so that the thread makes a number of separate turns round it. The prongs are next varnished to fix the thread at short lengths. A single thread can now be brought into its destined place, received into grooves cut for it, tightened and secured by a touch of varnish. Sometimes threads unwound from the cocoon of a spider are employed instead of fresh threads. In this case, the cocoon is laid upon water till it untwists, then it is laid across the prongs of a fork and secured as before. The best part of this short account of the garden spider comes from Kirby and Spence, and I think that some of my readers, especially those who already know and value the introduction to entomology, may be glad to be told who Kirby and Spence were. Kirby was a Suffolk clergyman, who before the introduction had made him widely known, had won distinction in the narrow circle of professed zoologists by his history of British bees, Monographia Apum Angliae. 
and his investigations of the structure and habits of stylops and xenos, very remarkable insects which are parasitic upon bees and wasps. So peculiar are they that Kirby, with general approval, made them into a separate order, Strepsiptera, which is still recognized, though it is generally believed that the Strepsiptera are beetles, which have become strangely modified to suit the exigencies of a parasitic life. It was a leading object with the authors of the introduction to demonstrate the wisdom and beneficence of providence as displayed in nature, and they were held to have succeeded so well that Kirby was afterwards selected to write one of the Bridgewater Treatises, 1835. The junior author, Spence, was a Hull dry salter. Before he published on insects, he was well known as the writer of some spirited tracts on political and economic subjects, such as his Britain Independent of Commerce, which was very widely read. Spence sought to convince people that Britain was more than a match for the whole power of Napoleon, that agriculture is the only basis of enduring national prosperity, and that British agriculture cannot flourish without the aid of corn laws. The introduction was published in four separate volumes between 1815 and 1826. It proved so interesting to the public that seven editions were called for during the lifetime of Spence, who outlasted his colleague by ten years. The authors owed much to earlier naturalists, especially to Réaumur, but they worked for themselves, too, and described many contrivances which they were the first to discover. A reader of the introduction will often find that Kirby and Spence furnished the most valuable part of some popular books on insects in which their names are barely mentioned. One would suppose, from examination of their separate writings, that Spence must have been the livelier writer of the two. When he was disabled by illness, Kirby wrote almost by himself the third and fourth volumes, and these are far less readable and less valuable than the first two. But the testimony of the authors does not allow us to give the credit of what is best in the introduction to either author separately. They declared that it was in every sense a joint work, and that it was impossible to distinguish the part which each had contributed. Their friends remarked, notwithstanding this protest, that whenever a particular anecdote or description was praised, Kirby was inclined to say that it belonged to Spence, and Spence that it belonged to Kirby. The introduction is of permanent value. It has helped to make many a naturalist already, and its virtue is not yet lost. Like the natural history of Selborne, it shows how profitable as well as how interesting it is to study our animals alive. End of chapter 44